Well, how's everybody this evening? We hanging in there? Somebody told me winter's coming. I'm trying not to believe that. (laughs) I'd like a couple more months of riding. I don't know. We'll see. No snow on the ground yet. So, the earliest ever was October fourth, right? Since I've been here, and it's only the second, right? So a couple more days. We get three more days, then maybe winter will be late. I don't know if we will. Yeah, (laughs) that's how we'll be praying. If you have your Bibles, open up Isaiah chapter sixty. We're going to take a look Isaiah chapter sixty, and as we do. There's a couple of interesting things I just would like you to consider as uh, as we look at it. And traditionally, um, when we come to Old Testament prophets, often we we try to <clears throat> derive from from their prophecy literal. Uh, a literal fulfillment. So we typically build timelines and ideas about how do, how's the end times going to work out. And uh, but the more I study the the that that wasn't commonly how they dealt with Isaiah. So when I, when I you know Isaiah was written to Israel, and um, when they would deal with it, they. Uh, they saw more a promise of God to accomplish what he said he would do in the beginning of Isaiah, right? So all the way through Isaiah, we're going to follow this, this train of thought. I'm not what I should be. And in order for me to become what I ought to be in a relationship with God... I need God to equip me. I need God to forgive me. I need God to empower me, right? I need need God to to touch me. And so the way that God has been revealing that to the people is what what I would call progressive revelation. So he's laying out the concept, right? The promises, the, the calls to trust him in light of their circumstances day in and day out. Put their faith in him. He's gonna carry them through. And then, uh, interspersed between those prophecies is uh, um, is other prophecies speaking of the day when it's all going to happen. That there will be a day when when we're going to see the the things we long for. The battle with our uh, sin nature will be over for Israel. The the idea that one day they've they've been the derision of. Uh, you know, the world for so long, but God promises there will be a day they won't be that anymore. There will be a day when they will be the place where all the world wants to go instead of the place that all the world is, uh, hates, you know, for, for whatever reason. So we're going to be talking about the glory of the Lord and specifically in Isaiah 60, the idea of light. Now, if you remember in John chapter 1, it tells us that light has come. And that Jesus Christ is that light. John chapter 8, verse 52. John chapter 9, verse 5. Both say this. Again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And part of that idea is that we need revelation from God to understand what it is 
that we're supposed to do. How do I, how do I walk pleasing to God? It's not, this is not a question of opinions. And we talked about this morning at the Bible study at my house, where we, we started uh, pecking our way through Proverbs. We'll see if we stay there or not. But part of the idea of looking at Proverbs is that Proverbs is, is a call to an absolute standard of authority by which we walk. Now, if we're not walking according to that authority, if we're not walking by the authority of God's word, the Bible says we're walking in darkness. You with me? And so when the Bible says that light has come, it's indicating that now we know what to do. And specifically when Jesus comes, we have that phrase repeated over and over again. Why? Because Jesus came and said what? Come follow me, right? Come follow me. Walk this way. You know, this is the, this is the way. He becomes that standard for us, right? The, the standard for us. So we have this idea of the light of God shining on the people. And there are promises in the Old Testament that God's light will come. And you'll know what to do. Now, I believe when those things occur, you know, just as they did with, with Jesus, I believe that it's, it is man's responsibility to respond to that. To respond to the light. Uh, John chapter 1 says, Light came to the world, but men did not comprehend it. Because their deeds were evil, they loved the darkness rather than the light. Now there's a point where man is happy to be in his own filth, right? He's satisfied, I'm comfortable here. I'm comfortable with where my life's going and how my life is progressing. And so God may shine light, but it does not mandate that man will respond to that light. Some men will, some men won't. A lot of people try a lot of different systems to explain why and how that happens, but, but nonetheless, it does. God brings light, and, and so this is what Isaiah 60 is about. The light of God coming. And so, the glory of the Lord being revealed. And when we look at light throughout Scripture, we see <coughs> light referring to that which is the opposite of darkness. Uh, it's used to refer to God, to Messiah. Uh, to the stars in the in the uh, heavenly bodies, which often again uh, can be used to refer to angels, uh, and they're reflecting of the glory of God. Um, light is is used to refer to understanding. It has become a symbol for God's word, for the gospel. A lot of ways that light can be used metaphorically throughout the scripture. So as we look at the scripture today, we want to understand this picture. What is a, <clears throat> the picture of light that God's given? Well, look at Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So we have this spoken prophetically of, of Isaiah, and, and I think referring to the, the coming of Messiah, the coming of the, of the light of the Lord being... Uh, revealed to the people and the challenge to the people hey the light has come it's time to respond arise and then what is it if we if we are following the light then we are also going to be reflecting that light that light will be reflected in our life arise shine your light has come the glory of the lord has risen upon you paul would write in ephesians chapter 5 
verse 14. For anything that, that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <coughs> the idea, arise, shine, the light has come. Uh, it reminds me of what, of what the writer of Hebrews says in the very beginning of Hebrews when he concludes that all the revelation that God's going to give is summed up in Christ. God's finished revealing. He's given his revelation. And his revelation is, is fulfilled completely in, in the Lord. So we see this picture, okay? The light has come. And then you have God prophetically through Isaiah talking about the people coming to the light. Look at verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you and the glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light. <coughs> and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the idea is the world is in darkness. And one of the, one of the prophetic ideals that the, that all the prophets talk about in, in terms of Israel is that one day there will be a light in Israel that all the nations will be drawn to. They're coming to the light. They're coming to, to receive that light. That, uh, place that was at one time hated becomes a, a haven where nations are going to come. Now, prophetically, maybe he's talking about, uh, something like the millennial reign of Christ. Maybe he's, He's pointing to those to those ideals. But you have the exact same idea when you have the, the reality that Jesus Christ, his whole ministry was accomplished in Israel, which is a little know-nothing nation. There, there's nothing special about it. If, if you ever go with us to Israel, the one thing they have in abundance is rocks. So, you know... You know, it'll it will actually melt your your brain a little bit that people have been fighting over it for so long. What do you want? A big pile of rocks. I want that big pile of rocks. No, I want that big pile of rocks. But the reality is that there is a a spiritual reality uh, that that is there that that uh, there's a demonic oppression against, and I think some of that is because of prophecies like this. The light, the light shines. That light that is in that place is drawing people to come. In Isaiah 9-2, it says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Well, as we began, that's what Jesus said. I'm the light of the world. If you come to me, you won't walk in darkness. You won't walk in darkness. That The light has come and it's time to arise and shine. In Matthew, uh, referring to this, Matthew 4, verse 15, says, In the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in that region, the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So there's this concept when we talk about the atonement and and what it is to, to be saved, that there's a, a process. And, and the first, I guess the first element of the process that God is working is light. And, and that part of that element is Christ. 
He's the light shining in the darkness. He's the one who's drawing all nations to himself. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's it. That's the, that's the light. He's the final revelation of God. And his ministry all took place there in Israel. So at one point, the fact that Israel is hated, and then the idea that everybody's going to be flocking there, coming there, to comprehend the light, to under, try to understand the light that God has shown, uh, I think that's what Scripture is referring to. In Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, it began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. So you have, again, the idea of light being shown and response uh, given to the light. And so the Gentiles turning to the light, coming to the light... Um, so in, in Isaiah verse four, then <clears throat> well, where are they coming from? I, Isaiah, uh, 60 verse four says, lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. So they're coming from afar from everywhere. There, there's going to be language a little bit further on. That's going to talk about. The islands, uh, we, which we've talked about before, being an, a, an example of the farthest reaches of earth. You know, the furthest away thing that they could imagine was, was the island. So they're coming from afar, but there's also an idea of dependence. Your sons will come from afar, your daughters will be carried on, on the hip. So there's this concept of dependence. They're dependent on and coming toward uh, the place where this great light has dawned. <clears throat> to receive that revelation that God has given. And then he goes on in verse 5. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So the, the idea that everything's going to change. The attitude is going to change uh, and you will <coughs> see this light and then you will reflect it. Come, arise, shine. The light has come. So this, again, you will see and be radiant. Your heart will, will thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea, the abundance of the things. Now, keep in mind, you know, I know a lot of times people misunderstand this especially when we talk about the sea in revelation and we and they'll say things like well there's not going to be any sea in in the new heaven or the new earth we'll just have you know solid land and i don't think that's what scripture's saying at all the sea is a symbol of of chaos the sea is a symbol of the place where all the scary things are the israeli people were not seafaring people they didn't have a navy they have a navy now but they didn't have a navy then they didn't want to travel on the sea. Bad things happen when you travel on the sea. Remember Jonah? And you need more evidence. Paul, remember Paul? He gets bit by a viper because of shipwreck, right? 
uh, multiple shipwrecks in his career. The sea was a scary place. <coughs> it was a place to, to fear, the place where the boogeyman comes from, the place where the beast rises out of. You remember in Revelation, where's the beast come from? Out of the waters, out of the sea, out of the, out of the realm of chaos comes this beast. Well, what's he saying now? He's saying the sea, that place that you were all afraid of, it's going to, the abundance of the sea is going to be turned to you. You're not going to have to be afraid of that place anymore. You're going to have the abundance of the sea poured out upon you. Not only that, the wealth of the nations. Now, think about Israel's history, even through Isaiah the prophet. The, the peoples, the nations around Israel were always trying to take their wealth. They're always trying to come get it. Conquer them. Rip, take the gold out of the temple. Take their homes. Take their crops. Right? This is the world they lived in. But here the Lord's saying the day's going to come when that's not going to be the case. But they're all going to bring it to you. They're going to bring their wealth to you. They're going to want what you have. A multitude of camels will cover you. <clears throat> the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Now if you remember... Sheba, that's the, the queen of the south. Remember Sheba? She came to, to inquire of Solomon. Are you really as wise as they say? Well, I don't think he was, but yeah. She came to see. And now they're saying, look, just like she came to see, is this true that God is moving and working in this place? He's saying, again, they're going to come as far as Sheba to see the light. They want to see this light that is dawned. They will bring gold and frankincense and, and they shall bring good news. Good news. That's, that's the gospel. They shall bring good news and the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboth shall minister to you. They will come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. So there's, these are all promises of things that, that God's going to do in and through the nation of Israel. And rather than I think us trying to, to put it, plug it into our ideas of eschatology, we should see that God is promising his people, man, the light's going to come. Everybody's going to want to come to see that light. All the people who are trying to rip you off, they're going to want to come and bring all their wealth to you. One day, this is going to be the attitude. It's not always going to be like it is now. It's not always going to be the suffering that you're going through now. It's not always going to be the fear of exile like you have now. There will be a day. You know, I love that song by Jeremy Camp because it's something that we need to remind ourselves of. Because it's, it's, life is not always a storm. Life is not always a struggle, though there are many struggles in life. There will be a day. That's not the case. There will be a day when, when we will step out of the darkness. There will be a day when the light of Christ is going to radiate uh, through us in greater and greater degrees. There will be a day when, when people are going to be drawn to that light. That, that there will be this response taking place. And <clears throat> I love that they will come... Not with derision on the altar of God, which is kind of the attitude we would see 
if we if we plug ourselves into this in our world today, there's a an attitude of derision toward all things uh, godly. But he's saying they'll they'll come with acceptance to my altar. That that it speaks that not only is the way to the altar open to them, which by the way was never open to them before. You know, you have all the nations coming. The Gentiles could never enter into the Holy of Holies. The Gentiles couldn't come before the altar. But he says they're going to come with acceptance. So I think it speaks both ways, that there's going to be an acceptance of them wanting to come and the ability. Well, how is it that we're able to come? How do we enter boldly before the throne of his grace? By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how that's accomplished. And he's the light. He's the light, I think, that Isaiah is prophesying about, that he's talking about. And so the last word that Jesus said about the temple was, See, your house is left to you desolate. But Isaiah says there will be a day when God says, I'm going to make my house beautiful. So there, there, there is a day of redemption, right? There is a, a time of redemption. And the question is not a question so much of, can I put this on a timeline where I can plot for you when this is all going to take place? No, to me, it's, it's not relevant. What's relevant is that God say, says there will be a day. And the things that we know about the Lord is, uh, if there will be a day, then I can just trust him, right? Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's next week. It doesn't matter. There will be a day. So that is that light of hope, right, that is intended to carry us through whatever the dark time that you're going to enter into. These people, the nation of Israel, are going to go into exile for 70 plus years. And while they're in exile, a great number of those people are going to lose their identity. So much so that when the exile ends, very few are going to go back to the land. They're going to have lost their way in the darkness so that when the light dawns, they're not, they're not drawn. They don't want to go. They want to stay in the dark. But God lays out this word of hope <coughs> so that we can know that the, this thing that God is doing, shining light, bringing revelation, uh, the, the, the birth, death, and resurrection of His Son, all of these things, they're what God is going to do. God is the one who's providing it all. This is not something that we work up. You know, oh God, tomorrow I'm really going to be into the light. No, it's something that God does and we respond to what he has provided. It says in verse 8, Who are these that fly like a cloud, like doves to their windows? Who are these people that are flocking to see the light? To come, what, what's going on? <coughs> For the coastlands shall hope for me. The furthest reaches of the world are going are to want to understand. The ships of Tarshish. Uh, first, to bring your children from afar. So this, this idea of the ingathering right, of the nation of Israel. Because there's been a lot of talk throughout Isaiah of exile. Which means there's going to be a time when you get spread out. But if there's a time when you get spread out, what's God saying? There's going to be a time when you come back. So the, the point is that what God teaches and what God lays out for is that his anger is just a moment. 
It's just a moment. All these things are, are temporary aspects if we will hold on to the hope that God's light will dawn. To bring your children from afar, <clears throat> their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel. Because he has made you beautiful. So the idea is that everybody hates you. Just get the idea, the picture, right? For, for you as a nation. Everybody hates you, but God's saying one day, they're all going to love you because you are beautiful. Ezekiel chapter 16, God describes the nation of Israel as a stillborn, unwanted child thrown into the field in her uh, birth fluids and blood. Thrown away. And God says in Ezekiel 16, so I came to you. And I washed you and I cleaned you and I took care of you. But there was a time when this young child that was cared for and reared by God would turn in rebellion against God. And so God would allow that child to go uh, to turn toward her other lovers. But none of her other, all her other lovers just want to destroy her. But there was also a day in Ezekiel 16 where God says, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm not turning you over for that just for, for your suffering. I'm not just turning you over. I'm turning you over so that you know things were better in my father's house. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The, the, the son who left had no idea dad's house was worth a lick, right? He was pretty sure that he could do better out there and he could make better choices and decisions. So it wasn't until he ended up where? He's in a pigsty and he's looking at the food the pigs eat. You ever look at the food the pigs eat? Have you ever looked at the food the pigs eat and go, oh man, I'm hungry? No, it has not ever happened to me. I have been very hungry, but I've not been that hungry yet. And when he was there, what did he realize? It's better to be a slave in my father's house. What did David say? I, I, I want to be, or I'm willing to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, right? I'm willing to be a doorkeeper. So <clears throat> the idea of recognizing that, that with the Lord was better. But I, I don't know that. This child doesn't know that because she's been protected and covered and watched over by God all this time. But there was a day where God will let her Make her choices, right? Go her way. But it's all, the purpose of it all is to redeem, to restore. And that's what scripture is describing here. This restoration. They're going to come from afar because I have made you beautiful. Verse 10 lays out the, the, the proof of the mercy of God. Look, foreigners will build up your walls. The idea is the people who have been tearing you down are going to build up your walls. The people who have been trying to conquer you, they're going to be a part of restoring <clears throat> this idea of God's redemption, God's mercy. Their kings will come serve you. The kings of all these other lands, they're going to minister to you. That's what the word minister means. They're going to serve you. They're going to come alongside and bring service. For in my wrath I struck you. But in my favor, I have mercy on you. 
God's bend, if that's an okay way to put it, is to be merciful. Remember Jonah? Goes to Nineveh, has a bad attitude. God has to swallow him by a fish and puke him up on the beach, right? And he, he trudges through the town and he preaches 40 days and you're dead. He, he was hoping. But what, did, what was it Jonah said? When, when the people repented and God forgave them, what did Jonah say? I knew you were going to do that. Right? What does that mean? Sometimes the view that we have of the God of the Old Testament is this angry, vengeful God. And we have this new saved God of the New Testament who's uh, full of tender mercies and loving kindness. Well, that's not accurate. Jonah knew that about the God of the Old Testament. You're a God quick to mercy. Slow to anger. You're you're a God who, who wants... To see the wicked repent and live. That's what Ezekiel wrote. You want to see the wicked respond to the light and and have life. And so he says, look, in my wrath I I struck you. (coughs) The discipline of the Lord giving uh, what the people want. I want to be independent of you, God. We say that, but we don't always know what that means. But when in our independence, those often are the times where we recognize, man, I need the Lord. And thank God that in his favor, he has mercy, right? Isaiah 54, verse 7 says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, the Lord, your Redeemer. This is how he wants to be understood. I'm the Redeemer. I'm I'm the one who will make provision to bring you back where you where you need to be. So look what he says then about this place in verse 11. He says, your gates shall be open continually. Night and day they will not be shut. So that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations that their kings, uh, with their kings led in procession. So he's saying, look, I, you're not going to shut your gates. Now why do you shut your gates? You shut your gates to keep people out, especially the wicked, right? But when we look at scripture like Revelation, Revelation describes that new Jerusalem and the new creation, the the work that God's doing as a place where the wicked are outside. And he says the same thing, you're never going to have to shut your gates because the wicked aren't there. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to protect what you have because the wicked aren't there. In, in Revelation 21, verse 24, it says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory there. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The wicked are outside. 
So when he says, you don't have to shut your gates, he's like saying, nah, you don't have to lock your door at night. You don't have to worry about, did I, did I lock the car? Did I leave the key? Is somebody going to steal it? it uh, uh, you know, <coughs> the, the way we live in the midst of the wicked is different than the way we will live when there are no wicked. That makes sense? And so this is what God's talking about. You're not ever going to have to shut your gates. You're not going to have to be closed. You leave it open. If you had a store, you could say, oh, I'm out to lunch, but I'm going to leave the door open. If somebody needs to get something, come in and get it. You know, that's the that's kind of the the, the attitude, the coming in, the promise of those coming to the light again and bringing their wealth. Not taking your wealth, bringing their wealth in. Right? The, this idea that, that, that roles have reversed, that they have changed. <coughs> but, verse 12 says, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you will perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. So this is my point. There will be no wicked. He's looking forward to the transformation of Israel, the light shining there, and he's telling them, unlike the way it is now, you're not going to have to be afraid. There's not any wicked nations left. There's no conqueror coming in a hundred years to conquer you. That's all over. All those nations, he says, have been laid waste. They're gone. Zechariah chapter 14 says... Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of the booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. And there shall be plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all the nations that do not keep the feasts of booths. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about a time when all the nations are going to worship the Lord. It's, it's not intended to say, oh, there will be those nations who will be disobedient and it's not going to rain on them. No, what he's saying is they're all going to do it. What do you have to bring? How do you, how do you worship? How, how do you come? If there's <clears throat> no rain, you cease to exist. The Lord is saying, look, the wicked are gone. They perished. And you have a, a world, a, a world filled with people who want to follow the Lord, who want to respond to the Lord, who are going to keep the Feast of Booths. Why, why is that important? What does the Feast of Booths indicate? Well, again, John chapter 1 says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. The Feast of Booths was a time when the people would go live in a tent to remember the days that they were in the wilderness. And it prophetically spoke of God coming across the chasms of space from what it is to be Yahweh to what it is to wear the tent of flesh. And so there will be a day when everyone's going to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And nobody's not going to do it. 
everybody's going to come. If they didn't come, God says there would be judgment. But that doesn't mean that they won't come. There will be no wicked there. They're going to respond. All the nations, all of mankind coming to worship, drawn to the light of the Lord. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The construction, the building of the sanctuary, the temple of God. Um, He says, I'm going to make it beautiful. Well, a lot of people, when we look at the book of Ezekiel, we we look at a, a temple, the temple described in Ezekiel, the measurements that are given, the dis- discussion of of what's going to happen with that temple. And and a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about that temple, but, but I don't think that temple is a real building. Where's the temple of God? Individually, we are the temple of God, and corporately, we are the temple of God. And he's going to beautify his temple. That's his bride. That's all those who have faith in him. All those who have been rejected or the off-scouring, as Paul calls it, right? They were the off-scouring. Well, one day they're going to walk in triumph. The Lord is saying, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I'm going to beautify my house. That house, that building, that's done. Uh depending on your eschatology there has to be one more um if you're premillennial there has to be one more that comes up but none of that is ever going to matter because god's not going to dwell in it god's not god dwells in this temple now in you individually and in us corporately that's what the word of god declares that that we together are the temple of God. And so God's promising, look, <clears throat> that light has come, arise, shine. Let that light shine forth and I'm going to make it beautiful. It's going to be a beautiful place. And then in verse 14, he continues to talk about the promises. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you will bow down at your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord. We're talking about Israel, uh, the the hate and derision that had been poured out on Israel. They're going to call you the city of Yahweh. All those who hated you, all those who afflicted you, all those who despised you. Don't you see it's just the end of, of all the wicked and the birth of all that's glorious in the kingdom of God. Whether that's new heaven, new earth. The glorious kingdom of, uh, of the Messiah is less relevant. What's important is there will be a day. There'll be a day when all these things are absolutely true. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. So once, ugly, hideous, whatever, but there will be a day. There will be a day when 
I, the Lord says, I will make you majestic. In verse 16, and you shall suck the milk of nations and nurse at the breasts of kings. You will know that I, the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Lord says, you're going to know that I've done it because all the people who hated you, all the things that have been opposed to you, they're all going to sustain you one day. All of those things are going to come together. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. He's going to give them peace and righteousness. I always think it's uh, it's interesting in Genesis chapter 14 when we run into that fellow Melchizedek. You guys ever heard of him? King of righteousness, king of peace. And that prophetically just looking forward to the promises of God. What's God say? I'm going to make your overseers peace. I'm going to make your taskmasters righteousness. Righteousness and peace. Ruling over. Uh, Verse 18, violence will be no more in the land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Don't don't it just sound like the day when it's all going to be turned around? And it doesn't turn around again after that. That's it. And, And you have very similar descriptions when we come to... Revelation, and we talk about the new Jerusalem, and we talk about new heaven and the new earth. And <clears throat> we need to recognize all those things. I, I don't know if we're going to have a literal gate made out of a pearl. It doesn't matter. What matters is it's going to be open all the time. What matters is I'm going to have a home, a place where I belong, where I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be worried. I don't have to be filled with fear. Because though... I may find myself in darkness from time to time. Now, there will be a day when there won't be no more. When all those things are going to pass away. Look what he says in verse 19. The sun will be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. We've heard this before, haven't we? It says, the, but the Lord, Yahweh, will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. He's all we need. If we have him, we have everything that we need to (laughs) overcome all this. And this is his promise to his people. Look, I know it's hard now. And I know it's difficult now. I know you go through hurtful things now. But there will be a day. This is the promise God's given through Isaiah to his people. Telling them, don't be without hope. There will be a day. This is God's promise to his people. Your sun will no more go down and your moon no longer withdraw itself. In Revelation it says there will be no night. Now, don't get yourself all freaked out. What does he mean? Again, what, what happens in the night? That's when all the bad stuff happens, right? That's when all our 
worries come. That's when the nightmares hit. That's when the thief breaks in and steals. That's when all of those things happen. So when he says there's only going to be light and there's going to be no darkness, there's nothing wicked there. Nothing to be afraid of there. It's all gone. It's all driven away by who? By God. He's the light. He's the light. <clears throat> For your Lord will be the everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall end. What's another way to say that? And he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Right? Your days of mourning will end. There may be days of mourning now, but they will not be eternal. Why? <coughs> Your people shall all be, what's he say? Righteous. The people will all be righteous. There is no more wicked. The people will all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Who does this? Who accomplishes it? God does. God accomplishes it. He says in verse 22, The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am Yahweh, and I will hasten it. God says, I'm going to do it. I'm telling you I'm going to do it. How do we know God will be faithful to his promise? The light came. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so Paul would write, and when we come to Christ, what do we receive? We receive the Holy Spirit, which is what? A guarantee of our inheritance. What's the inheritance? We just read it. There's a world coming. All righteous. No wicked. The, the days of dark will be driven away. And all we'll be left with is the light of God. And that will be a glorious day. Amen. Why don't you stand with me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, God, to, to open up the pages. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be challenged by what we find there. And we would be challenged by what your word uh, uh, depicts, how you describe things, Lord. And I do absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, believe that there will be a day when all that is wrong will be made right. When all the things that we live in fear of, we won't have to fear anymore. Because, because there's a day when our Redeemer will absolutely, unequivocally redeem completely. <clears throat> Today we experience that on a smaller scale. But that small scale that we experience today is a guarantee of the promise to come. There will be a day when the light will shine and we will arise and reflect the glory of the Lord. And all the shadow of turning and darkness that, that, that uh, 
plagues my life will be driven away by the light of the Lord. And all the things that we're afraid of, whether it's the sea or the dark, <coughs> they'll all be gone and there will be nothing there except what has been written in the Lamb's book of life. God, we just uh, we thank you that when you redeem, you make this promise of redemption to the children of Israel and you make this promise of redemption to us. And there will be a day when our redemption will be absolutely complete and we will stand in glory with our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that was ever lost will be found in him. So God, we thank you for the promise. We thank you for the hope so that we do not lose heart, God. We hold on to your promise and we look forward to the day. And we give you praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.